CPR is part of the U.S. experience, shown on lots of TV shows and movies, and taught in every community in the U.S. But how did we get here? Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell, and we will discuss the story behind life-saving methods as discussed in the book, Shocked, Adventures in Bringing Back the Recently Dead by Dr. David Kasseret. David, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. So how did you first become interested in this topic? Well, you know, I'm, I'm a hospice doctor. I take care of patients near the end of life. I see what happens when CPR and resuscitation doesn't work. Or I see what happens when patients decide they don't want aggressive treatment to, to prolong life. And I really wanted to use this opportunity to see the flip side of that coin. I wanted to see what technology can do right now to bring people back from the dead. But I also wanted to get a sense of, of what might be possible someday, what the science is, what it's telling us, and how effective CPR and resuscitation might be in two years, five years, ten years from now. So how did resuscitation begin in the mid-1700s? <laughs> I think the most important summary is that we're very lucky. I think all of us are not alive in the 1700s because the processes of resuscitation back then were really pretty gruesome. All sorts of things were being tried. First, in Amsterdam, the Dutch Society in Favor of Drowned Persons was the name of the society that formed back then, which doesn't really make for a great acronym, but it was a group of Dutch citizens in Amsterdam who banded together to try to develop and test new interventions to bring back the dead, people mostly who had fallen into canals in Amsterdam and drowned. They tried all sorts of things, from bellows that were used to inflate the lungs to tickling the back of people's throats with a feather, throwing them over the back of a trotting horse, which in researching the book I decided to try, and I, I can tell you it's exactly as uncomfortable as it sounds, to rolling people over a barrel. And gradually they began to make some progress and then went what's now the Royal Humane Society in London was formed also in the 1700s. They also began to experiment with various techniques. And the British began to figure out what worked and what didn't. So some things like rolling over a barrel or a trotting horse were tossed out. But they developed other techniques of resuscitation, like tubes that were inserted through the nose down into the lungs, attached to bellows, which aren't that different from modern techniques of nasotracheal intubation. So they made some progress along the way. What about the tobacco enemas? I found that to be a very fascinating approach to drowning victims. <laughs> yeah, I skipped over those. I figured that's not something your listeners really want to hear about. But yeah, in the Dutch and the later British armamentarium was tobacco smoke blown into the rectum through a funnel. The theory being, I guess, that nicotine potentially in the tobacco might induce a reversal of a profound bradycardia that's, that's seen in the settings of drowning never tested in randomized control trials as, as far as I, I know, but that was one technique that many people held to dearly as something that was potentially beneficial. So I imagine the expression blowing smoke up someone's behind derives from this ineffective method of resuscitation. <laughs> I've never been able to track that down and confirm it, but that certainly seems pretty likely to me. So you wrote a lot about the cold and the cold really having a, an ability to kind of forestall people being declared dead. Would you like to elaborate on that? Yeah, it's something we've become increasingly aware of in the, the last 
50 years mostly. There were some suspicions about back in the 1700s. There was something that was known somewhat ominously as the Russian method of resuscitation, which consisted of taking injury or drowning victims and burying them in ice or snow. The theory was that that ice or snow had some benefits, which 200 years ago nobody really understood. It wasn't until much more recently that people began to get interested in some of the clinical potential for for cold. One of the most visible examples of that was a woman named Hannah Bagenholm, who was a Norwegian at the time medical student, who in 1999 fell into a river through the ice in Norway and drowned. And she was under the ice for about 80 minutes. When she was pulled out, she had no spontaneous respirations, no heart rate, no signs of life. And her body temperature was only 13.7 degrees Celsius, so very, very, very cold, much colder than the normal 37 degrees Celsius. And what was so remarkable about her story was that she survived. She survived and she did well. Rescuers managed to resuscitate her. She finished medical school and is now a practicing radiologist in Norway. And she was in her 20s when that happened. And that's, that's a key number because... In general, we know that the older you are in the setting of a cardiac arrest, especially a drowning, the worse you do overall and the worse you do neurologically. So for the fact that a woman in her 20s managed to survive neurologically intact after a very, very long period of no heartbeat, the reason that folks pointed to as people tried to understand why she did so well was the fact that her body temperature was so, so low. And that's led a lot of of people to be interested in the possibility that cold, whether it's modest degrees of cold in hypothermia protocols for CPR or potentially very, very aggressive forms of, of hypothermia in the setting of traumatic injury, battlefield injury, motor vehicle accident, or, or a cardiac arrest, might be able to protect our organs, particularly our brains, not just for 15 or 20 minutes or an hour, but maybe several hours or, or even days. Still, that's very theoretical, but there's a lot of interest in the ways that cold might be protective of brain cells in particular. When did electricity start entering into people's studies for bringing people back from the dead? (laughs) Well, it depends on when you actually start it, when you start the clock ticking. Mickey Eisenberg, who's a historian of science and a cardiologist, also a researcher at the University of Washington in Seattle, wrote a great history called Life in the Balance of the History of Resuscitation. And he places the first possible defibrillation of a person as far back as 1774, when somebody who's identified in reports as Mr. Squires, we don't know anything more about him, encountered somebody who had fallen out of a window, seemed to be unconscious, and applied wires from a a Leiden jar, which is sort of like a homemade battery, all over her and seemed to revive her. Whether that was actually a real example of defibrillation, nobody really knows. This is far before the days of EKGs. Mr. Squires, it seems, was not equipped with a stethoscope, so we had no idea whether this woman actually was in a cardiac arrhythmia or or not. But that seems to be one of the the first examples of of the application of, of a defibrillator. Probably in more recent times, Claude Beck was a surgeon in Cleveland. In 1947, he describes an instance in which, as one of his young patients was coming out of surgery, heart surgery, his heart stopped, got an experimental defibrillator, and and was able to, to restart that heart. 
and get it beating again and then describe that. That's, that's probably one of the first, if not the first, clear examples in the medical literature of a successful resuscitation fairly recently in, over, in the overall scheme of things. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell, and we're speaking with Dr. David Cassaret, author of Shocked, Adventures in Bringing Back the Recently Dead. So it seems like over the years, there's been a lot of fear of people being afraid, being buried prematurely, et cetera, that I think led to a lot of this interest. It's hard to say whether it actually led to that interest or whether it was caused by the interest in resuscitation. They definitely seem to happen about the same time. So in the 1700s and in the 1800s, as we were getting better at reviving the recently dead, there was a parallel movement, I guess you could call it, um, of concern of citizens who were worried that people might be buried prematurely. And I would tend to read it as the reaction, in a way, to some of these successes in resuscitation. If you think about it, as it becomes more and more apparent that some people who seem dead might actually be able to rejoin the living if you roll them over a barrel, put them on the back of a trotting horse, uh, tickle them with a feather or shock them, it becomes easy to imagine that maybe this person who seems dead and who could continue to be dead for quite some time might actually be susceptible to techniques of resuscitation if they're applied in the right way. I think that led to people's fears that they might be declared prematurely dead. And that fear, wherever it came from, led to a fairly odd industry of what were called safety coffins, uh, among other among other interventions. Safety coffins were these devices that were designed to let somebody who was buried inappropriately, somebody who was presumed to be dead but who later woke up, they were designed to allow that person to either get out and exit the coffin under their own steam or sometimes to ring a bell that would presumably alert bystanders that this person they just buried really wasn't quite dead yet and should be dug up. There are, of course, reports which are really hard to, to substantiate of people who were buried prematurely and then, and then rescued. It's hard to tell how often that happened, if at all, but enough, at least in the stories that you hear from that period, to make people concerned. So hibernating animals might have some research interest that might lead us to investigate different approaches to CPR. Yeah, that was a surprise to me. If you think about suspended animation, the concept of suspended animation, if, if I were to, to survey members of the general public, most people would say, oh, suspended animation, that's just science fiction. That's something you see in, in science fiction films. What researchers are beginning to realize, though, is that what happens in suspended animation, this process of reducing your metabolism to 1% or less of, of normal, is exactly what happens to animals during the process of hibernation. And that's interesting because if you think about a typical cardiac arrest scenario, somebody whose heart stops beating, they're not breathing, what you really want to do for that person is to reduce their metabolism by 99% or more. Because if you think about it, if somebody's brain and other organs are going to start getting into trouble if they're not seeing oxygen or blood flow for 10 or 15 minutes, what if you could reduce their metabolism to 1% or less of normal? You could actually extend that window of opportunity 
So rather than having 10, 15 minutes, 20 minutes at most to get that heart started, you actually could extend that to several hours or potentially even days. You could buy a lot of time for somebody who has a cardiac arrest, somebody who's in a motor vehicle accident, uh, a soldier who's injured on the battlefield who needs to be transported eight hours to a surgical theater. So there's a lot of interest in ways in which we might be able to reduce somebody's metabolism to buy them more time. And hibernation is a great example of a situation in which animals, a wide variety of animals, from bears to marmots to squirrels, manage to reduce their metabolism. So people are studying animals and animal hibernation in hopes that we might be able to learn some of their tricks so we could essentially hack the human physiology and convince the human physiology to reduce its, its metabolism as a way of, of buying patients some more time. Still very theoretical right now, um, but I think probably if we see any major advances in CPR and resuscitation in the next five or ten years, it may come from, from some variant on suspended animation or, put somewhat differently, some variant on hacking the body's physiology and inducing humans to hibernate. So where did CPR as we know it today develop from? Well, it depends on where you start that thread of history. A lot of people, I think, would point to two people, James Elam and Peter Safar, back in the 1950s. They first began experimenting in laboratories, often with willing medical students. They began experimenting with different techniques of mouth-to-mouth breathing and CPR later. But it wasn't just that they did these experiments to figure out how to to breathe for people or how to to get their hearts to engage in something that looks kind of like the normal heart contraction, but they really advanced the science of crowdsourcing resuscitation. They weren't content just to figure out what the physiology of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation or, or CPR looked like in a controlled setting. They really wanted to train the public in how to do this. And that led them, among other advances, to uh, something that, that many of us who have taken CPR courses know as Resuscitation Annie. turns out that Peter Saffer gave a, a talk that a Norwegian anesthesiologist attended. This is back in the 50s. And they began talking after the, the lecture, and Saffer talked about how he wanted to educate the public and how to do CPR. And this Norwegian anesthesiologist knew of a toy maker named Esmond Lairdal, who had come across a mask that was made back in the 1880s in Paris of a woman who had fallen and drowned and was so struck by the beauty of this face that he kept it, imagining that he would use it in, in some of his toy making at some point. They got together and they put this mysterious woman's face on a resuscitation mannequin, um, which uh, then later became known as Resuscitation Annie. So uh, Resuscitation Annie is often called the, the most kissed face of all time because all of us who have done CPR training, many of us have learned mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, have kissed that face of this mysterious woman who was pulled out of the, the Seine in Paris back in the, the 1880s. But that really was one of the starts, if not the start, of this effort to train the general public in CPR. So as a hospice doctor and kind of looking at the other side of the fence, what do you think the biggest lesson you learned in in researching this book? 
Um, the biggest lesson for me, I think, is that uh, we've gotten much better at bringing people back from the dead. And I've gained a new respect for patients I've talked to who have told me, you know, if my heart stops, just try to restart it. That may or may not be the right choice for them. And my role is not to convince them to either accept that or, or reject it, but to help them make the right choice. But that idea and that desire just to, to give it a try, as many of my patients tell me, makes a whole lot more sense to me now than it did a year ago. And I begin to see why people think that it looks so easy and so effective. It's, it's not, and it can be very, very difficult leaving people with um, large degrees of, of disability. I know that. I still know that. But I have a new appreciation for when my patients tell me, just, just give it a try. And it, it allows me to engage in these discussions with my patients in a much more, I think, understanding way that's much more respectful of both their views and what's actually possible out there than I did when I started. So it's a wonderful, fascinating book. The book is Shocked, Adventures in Bringing Back the Recently Dead with author David Cassaret. Doctor, thank you so much for being on the show today. 